0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello. Hey, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, and I am talking to you from Los Angeles, California. It is good to be with you. I have a great episode for you today. My guest is John Keane. He is the author of a new poetry collection entitled Punks. New and selected poems that is available now from the Song Cave. This is a remarkable collection from one of our finest poets. John Keane is an acclaimed fiction writer, translator, poet, MacArthur Fellow. And I thought it would be a good idea to start things off by hearing him read a poem from his new collection. This is a poem called Serenade.
1: I love you, Taxi's honk and hum, stirring snow-drunk Manhattan from its January slumber. Robin's weave an April melody, I love you above the midday symphony of 18 million souls. Evening, July, and she whose body writes in the lyric of Tai Chi, I love you, upon the rain-glazed village playground. Now night extends its raven hands to light the September moon's new lantern as sirens and cicadas serenade us. I love you.
0: All right, that is John Keene reading Serenade, a poem from his new book entitled Punks. Just a remarkable poetry collection drawn from the span of John Keene's life And it includes previously unpublished and brand new work. This is a book that shows great range. It is a musical book. It is a book that feels very much like a complete statement. It gives you a real sense of John Keane's life and times. It gives you a real sense of life itself. This is not a slim volume. It really packs a punch, and I greatly enjoyed it. My conversation with John Keene is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Echo Books, publisher of the novel Drowning Practice, by Mike McGinnis, due out on March 15th. Drowning Practice tells the story of a mother and a daughter trying to save each other's lives at what could be the end of the world. This is literary speculative fiction at its very best. Kirkus calls Drowning Practice, quote, twisty and moving, an apocalypse novel that will keep readers guessing until the last page. And Matt Bell calls Drowning Practice, quote, the best new novel I've read in ages. That's Drowning Practice by Mike McGinnis, available now from Echo Books. All right, so I do want to say some quick thank yous to some people who have pre-ordered my new novel. Thank you to Brad Wojak, David Quig, Sally Graham, Kelly Ural, Keely Thomas-Morgan, and Rachel Shapiro. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. For those of you who are new to the program, I have a novel of my own coming out in May. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And I would love it if you pre-ordered it it really helps and if you do pre-order it and you send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase I will send you a note in the mail along with uh, an official other people sticker I will also give you a shout out right here on the podcast in the monologue so if you would like to pre-order my book again it is called be brief and tell them everything just go to bradlisty.com it's all right there it's very easy whatever online bookseller you prefer you can use it And then afterwards, just email me the screenshot of your proof of purchase. The address is letters at otherppl.com, or else you can DM the show on Twitter or Instagram. Okay? So I did get some listener mail. I would like to get to that real quick. A listener named Landon writes, Dear Brad, I've enjoyed hearing your monologue updates about the publication process. As a long-time listener, I have heard you talk about your book, and the difficulties you endured along the way. Congrats on getting it done, though it does make me wonder what motivated you. (laughs) Why did you put yourself through all this? I'm genuinely curious. Signed, Landon. So, thank you, Landon. That's a good question. And really, why does anybody write? Because it's such a lot of work, and it's a difficult work oftentimes. I think it's partly compulsion. I think you're sort of wired to do this for whatever reason. And I'm sure pride has something to do with it. I know that I'm not a person who quits easily once I've set my mind to do something. And I also like the old Don DeLillo line about writing to find out what you know. I think there's some truth in that for me. Or, like, writing to answer questions that are bothering you. This was certainly the case with uh, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. As within it, I'm trying to address some difficult questions around fatherhood, having children, uh, my son's disabilities in particular, as well as, uh, like, you know, existential questions about grief, death, money, love. All of it. And I think, too, I was trying to write a book that I often say that I want to read something that is vulnerable and hopefully unusually honest, rigorous in its thinking, and efficient in its telling. I was just trying to emulate some of the things that I enjoy as a reader, which I think is natural. And the last thing that I'll say is that this book is very much a book that I've had to write. Not to be melodramatic about it, but I don't think that I could have written or could write another book until I got this one out of my system. It was just in the way, if that makes sense. So whatever happens, I'm sincerely relieved to have seen it through. And I hope, Landon, that you and... Other readers enjoy it when it comes out in May. Alright? So thank you for writing. One last time the book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, due out on May 10th. You can pre order it over at Bradlisty.com right now. So today's guest again is John Keane, writer, translator, professor, and artist who in twenty eighteen was named a MacArthur Fellow. In nineteen eighty-nine, John Keane joined the Dark Room Writers Collective and he is a graduate fellow of the Cave Canum Writers' Workshops. I believe I pronounced that correctly. His other books include Annotations and Counter Narratives, both of which are published by New Directions, as well as several other works, including the poetry collection Seismosis with artist Christopher Stackhouse and a translation of Brazilian author Hilda Hilst's novel entitled Letters from a Seducer. Through the years, John Keene has received many awards and fellowships, including the Wyndham Campbell Prize, the Whiting Foundation Prize, the Republic of Consciousness Prize, and the American Book Award. He teaches at Rutgers University, Newark. It is a great pleasure to have him here on the program and to learn a little bit about his life and work. His new collection, once again, is called Punks, New and Selected Poems. This is my conversation with John Keene.
1: What is now called Punk's had at its core an earlier manuscript, probably, I think, from the early 2000s. And the earliest version of it, I would say, it might have been even 1997. It was a finalist for, or no, it wasn't wasn't even a finalist. It was at a, uh, I guess it made several stages into a a poetry competition. And then actually the The more final version was a finalist for uh, the Cave Canem Prize under a different name. And there were several other projects that uh, kind of are woven into this final collection that I also sought to get published. But every time it seemed like I was going to get it published or I got, you know, uh, a green light of some sort, things fell through. So. I actually had gotten to the point where I thought, okay, you know, I'll never publish these poems, you know, in my lifetime, or you know, other than in a little chapbook that came out uh, a few years ago from Seven Kitchens Press called Playland, which has about fifteen of the poems here. But it so happened. I mean, you know, serendipity still exists. I mean, I knew Alan Felsenthal. I'd met uh, Alan some years ago, and uh, had followed his press I was a big fan. I, I think I said. To him at one point that you know uh, going to Song Cave's table at the New York Art Book Fair at MoMA PS1 was one of my you know, kind of my highlights of, of visiting visiting uh, you know that that wonderful gathering every year. So anyway, he I think he heard me read and he asked me if I had uh, if if the poem I read poems I read were part of a collection and I mentioned I think a little chapbook and then he said well why don't you you know send me the manuscript so. Uh, it actually took a couple years because when i looked at what i had i thought you know i think i had that sinking feeling that i'd had with the earlier versions of this the main manuscript and of the several like sort of subsidiary manuscripts which i call the kind of ghost books but then finally i think it was early last year i just forced myself to go back in revisit everything uh, rearrange things and then send it to alan uh, and ben estes the other uh, I guess uh, editor uh, of uh, the Song Cave. Most of them are wonderful poets in you know in their own right, and they looked it through. They made excellent suggestions. I think you know Alan may have said you know yeah the general order and the structuring of the book does work. Um, uh, you know they agreed to include the uh, collaborative poems with Cynthia Gray Cindy Lore, which was wonderful, uh, and um, you know I think they also said I mean, usually you know nowadays with poetry books you you know you have a, it's a very discreet project, but here, you know, uh, you have a range of poems and a range of forms, but they speak to each other. They work together. And that was something I think I realized when I, when I began to, you know, uh, to reorder and rearrange things that yes, this actually could work almost in a kind of symphonic way. So mixtape anthology, symphony. I mean, you can use it in any number of terms, but that's kind of how I look at it now. And I actually feel like I'm I'm sort of amazed when I look at it to, to, you know, uh, now that it's in print, to see that, in fact, uh, it does work. I mean, you can start, you can, I tell people, you can read poems in any order you want, or you can start at the beginning, or you can start at the end and read backward to the front, and you get a range of Sort of stories, but there's a, there are consistent themes. There's a kind of consistent arc, and you get a, a real sort of holistic sense of what the book is uh, trying to do.
0: Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond. okay so a a couple things come to mind as i listen to you the first of which is that sometimes uh, like delayed gratification can be a real blessing because Mm -hmm. you had the ghost book you know the ghost books as you call them earlier versions not complete you know not the completed book that we now have in punks but elements of it that you tried to Mm -hmm. publish independently but didn't find a home for Do you feel a sense of good fortune now in retrospect as you consider the effect that these disparate parts have when they're uh, working together in unison? I feel like there's a real power in this book that might not have existed uh, or like might not have existed to the degree that it does had these things been published independently.
1: Do do you hear hear what I'm saying? I do. I mean, one of the things I, I sort of feel is that, you know, some of the poems have a kind of, I'm not talking about the poems about historical personages, right? You know, the persona poems, but I'm thinking about the poems that, you know, um, describe particular moments in time. And on the one hand, I feel like, okay, it would have been great to have those poems appear closer to the time when, you know, that they're they're invoking, that they're describing. On the other hand, in a very sort of strange way, Though we, I feel like we're distant from those moments, and then in another way, they're still with us, right? And so there's a power in in not forgetting them, right? So it becomes it becomes a kind of project of reclamation and memory, in addition to you know the kind of we think about the sort of descriptive and you know imaginative power that uh, poetry possesses. So 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 in a sense, I mean, I think you know the earlier books would have been very different books. But together, and of course there are many poems, I think one of the reviews, it was a beautiful review in uh, Poetry, in the Poetry uh, website, and one of them noted that, you know, uh, uh, sort of picked up that there probably were a lot of poems that were cut. And so that's, I think, also the case, that there are many poems that, you know, are not here that would have made, would have filled out those other books, but it's fine because what's here is what works and it it has a a particular kind of impact Mm -hmm. Uh, collectively, but also in terms of the individual poems
0: so this poetry collection reads to me or delivered a an impact that is not entirely dissimilar to how I feel after i 've read a memoir, and it 's working more abstractly and in less of a linear fashion than the typical memoir does, but that was the feeling that I got. There was some feeling of like deep memory work, but also a feeling of completeness. There was just so much there, and I felt like I really got to n- know you <laughs> as I read this poetry collection to a degree that dis- distinguishes
1: itself. One of the things I love about poetry is that, on the one hand, you know, you read poetry for its content. So in the sense that one thinks about a memoir, right, yes, the aspects of my personal life are here, right, in poetic form, right? It's not It's not the sort of straightforward-shaped narrative that you get in a memoir. On the other hand, poetry is and consists of and in language. So language is absolutely important in poetry. I mean, not all poets feel this way, but I feel this way. The language is important, right? You you think about the words. Every word that goes into a poem is essential. So I think that might sort of point to the comment that you're making about abstraction in the sense that, you know. There is that interesting tension between what's in the poems, but also how they're told, because how they're told, how they're how they're written, how they're how they unfold uh, matters and how they unfold individually and then how they unfold in sections and then how they unfold collectively. I think there is a kind of accumulative power, right, cumulative and accumulative power to having all of these poems together. I mean, I think about, for example, the, the poems in the section, The Lost World, those are really poems about, you know, being a young black queer person, black gay, black gay man in the late eighties, early nineties, as HIV was raging, you know, the crack ep- epidemic was raging. We were in, you know, kind of a, the throes of conservative backlash. Uh, but also they're, they're about being young. I mean, what does it mean to be a young person at a particular time? Uh, what does it mean to, on the one hand, have this powerful sense of freedom, and then to also feel that freedom, like, you know, powerfully circumscribed in certain ways, right? Because of who you are, because of the kind of threats that are out there. So, you know, I feel like there's a way in which that I is, of course, as always in the poem, you know, you. One of the things we always say to students is, right, you know, the I, you want to separate the I uh, in a poem, you know, the, there's a poetic speaker, a poetic voice, and then there is the the author and between the two, <laughs> all kinds of things can happen. Right. I think about the George Washington Carver poem, that is a poem in George Washington Carver's voice, but that's also filtered through my consciousness. Right. I'm focusing on certain aspects of Carver. Right. And, who I imagine he is and what I imagine his significance is, right? And I wanted to think about, you know, what might a moment in his life, a glimpse into his existence look like? And it's my glimpse, you know, even where there's a, there's, I think, much more uh, distance in terms of, you know, what the poems are, the content of the poems, right? That authorial consciousness, a, a particular perspective, the aesthetics are mine, and it connects those poems. This is why I think it's really sort of interesting to think about these poems uh, all together. They connect to those poems that are that do feel much more directly autobiographical and uh, personal. You know.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think it's almost it's truer to life, really. When I like this collection has been called uh, like a an exploration of the self or the polyphonic nature of the self, which I think is accurate. And we build our identities. We build them through story. We build them through, you know, these narratives that we construct around our memories, the stories that we tell and retell to ourselves. And we also build our sense of self from other people. (laughs) You know, we we pick and choose little bits and pieces from people we admire, people we know, people we've met, people we've talked to once on a train. You know, like it could be anything really. But that's what I think spoke to me so much about The persona section in particular, but also how it works against other sections that are uh, operating differently. Because if it were just one of these sections alone, it would still be lovely and true to life, but not as complete as the effect that is delivered by all of these sections working in concert. So there's a unique completeness to this collection that I really appreciate.
1: Thank you. No, that's it's good to hear. I mean, as I said, I was a little, you know, uh, I was a little worried when 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 the book was on its way. Once you put a book in the world, you know, you don't have any power over it. It's out there. I mean, you know, you might do PR and of course, clearly do readings and wonderful conversations like this, but the book is out in the world. You know, it has to speak for itself. And uh, I was a little nervous because I said, you know, I think particularly after my last book, Counter Narratives, you know people were going to, there was a sort of expectation where you're going to do another counter-narratives. Which I should, I should
0: interrupt and just let listeners know that counter-narratives is a story collection. It's not poetry.
1: Exactly. Exactly. It's a collection of stories and novellas, but there are ways in which that book and this book are in conversation. I mean, in direct conversation and indirect conversation, and they flow into each other. That collection i wanted to write stories that were not at all autobiographical but of course they're again shaped by my consciousness my perspective and uh they focus a lot on history and here of course i think we've been talking about these persona poems and others more personal poems about my family particularly my my grandfather and grandmother Uh, those have a historical weight too but of course everything has a historical weight right you know historical i have to here once you start to think about it. So in a sense, they're not so uh, different as some people might imagine. But I'm glad to to see the reception uh, of punks. And I just see people posting individual poems that really strike them, uh, you know, on Twitter, for example, or uh, Instagram is really heartening, you know, because I mean, people have been very moved by, by poems in this book, and that's that's what you want as a writer. You know, you want to be able to speak speak to people and reach people. And sometimes you reach them in ways that you you can't imagine or can't foresee. You know, but but there's something in in the poem, you know, in a story, in a novel that speaks directly to them, right? And might lift them up, or might give them a moment of recognition or might defamiliarize the world in front of them and transform how they see things, right? Or might inspire them, right? I mean, if they're a writer or if they're not a writer, you know, they say, oh my God, this is a poem I'm going to carry with me today, right? Or I'm going to reread this over and over because it's speaking to me in a particular way. So that's always, a, I think, a very encouraging thing. And I've, I've, been, I've been very encouraged by uh, the response so far.
0: Well, that is that is the internet as a, as God intended it to be used, right? That's when social media and the internet... <laughs> Like when somebody finds a poem or a piece of, uh, writing that they really respond to and they post it, uh, that's really nice. And not only is it a really nice thing to do, but it's also nice that you as the author can often know that your work has landed. Whereas previously, I guess you would have to get a letter
1: or maybe an email. Yeah, right. You, you get it. You get an e sometimes you get letters. I get, I've gotten letters, sometimes emails, But, but most Frequently, of course, when you know I do readings, you do a reading, and someone says, "Oh, I really, you know, I love that story or that poem spoke to me." And that's 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 as heartening as as anything.
0: Yeah, yeah in person. Yeah, uh, which is rarer and rarer these days. Hopefully, we're getting back to it.
1: <laughs> in our in our pandemic-ridden world. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to talk to you about the title of the collection, "Punks," and this word "punk," which I did not know until I did a little research that it was also, it was used, or it has been used as a word for gay man.
1: Yes. So in black vernacular culture, yes, it, if you call someone a punk or you say, you know, don't be a punk or so it's a punk, that, that can mean that they're gay. Of course, it can also mean punk, the more basic sense of, you know, unmanly. Not so much gay, but just you know, not strong, weak. Of course, then then punk, you know, the, just like hanging out in the corner like a bunch of punks is basically like you know out, like bad people, outlaws. And then of course there was punk rock and punk music, which was big when I was young. And so I, I you know, all of those things together. Uh, resonated for me. So I said, I would call this book punks. And I also loved that, you know, every time when people mention this book, they have to say punks, right? You know, because with, with the various shadings in, you know, uh, implicit in it. I, w- I should say that at one point, I was thinking of calling it sissies, but, you know, there, I think there've been a number of books, uh, sissy, either titled sissy or sissies. And I liked punk and punks to me, you know, had, as you mentioned, you know, this this sort of added, these added valences that aren't always apparent. But either way, I mean, even even I think you know, in a certain way, you know, the, the the organization of the book is almost, in a sense, like I don't know, like a punk song or something, right? You know, it's like you know, it's not the usual, that's nice, neat. Thing. I mean, it's like you know, you got a, you know one poem that's basically in all caps and you know is deeply informed by hip hop, and you have got other poems that are you know like the one of the first poems that's in. Um, couplets, right? The rhyme and couplets. So, I mean, I feel like, yeah, there's, there's a punk spirit here, a punk in every possible, uh, you know, understanding of that term.
0: And the photo, it's a beautifully designed book. Uh, so credit to, uh, the song cave. It's a beautiful book to hold, you know, and the photo on the cover, I love as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that something that you had a hand in or is that something that the song cave found?
1: Well, the interesting thing is I actually found, I had saved, I come across this photo and saved it several years ago. And and you know what?
0: I I don't mean to interrupt, but we should describe a little bit what it looks like for listeners who might not have uh, any kind of visual frame of reference. This is a photo of two black Navy men. Are they sailors? They look like they're two black sailors, Mm -hmm. two black sailors, one of whom, is sort of smiling and making a silly face, sticking his tongue out. The other one, looking at him with uh, affection, I would say, right?
1: Right. Both affection and a little bit of a side eye. Right? Yeah. Right. yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like some interesting, like kind of Mona Lisa almost, like like a combo because it's hard, it's hard to parse, but it's it's a it's a multitude of things.
1: Right. Exactly. Well, no, I loved it. I mean, they're they I guess they're navy blues and with the you know those wonderful little white uh, hats they wear, and one has his tongue out, and the other one right is looking at him with the side eye, but it's also, there's an element of desire there. It's a, a, a I think, a very queer photo. Alvin, it's by Alvin Baltrup, who was an amazing African-American photographer. He's known for his portraits of um, New York gay, queer, LGBTQ life. Uh, particularly from, I think, the late 60s through the 80s, or maybe even the 90s, he unfortunately, I mean, he, he did receive some recognition when he was alive, but he was really not uh, as acclaimed as he should have been. And I think when uh, Song Cave and I uh, settled on this photo, you know, they, at the, Alan may have had several, Alan Felsenthal, one of the editors, may have had several photos in mind, but uh, when we settled on this one, he approached the uh, Alvin Baltrip estate and uh, they were wonderful. They worked with the song cave and I have this amazing cover <laughs> and I, I love it. I mean, it's a wonderful book. I love looking at this book, you know, yeah. and I think a lot of people, a lot of people do too. So that's, that's, that's the other thing too. It's nice to have a book. That's nice to look at, you know, it makes you, it makes people want to pick it up. It makes people want to open it up uh, and, you know, set it on a coffee table or on a bookshelf so people can see it.
0: Now, the, some of the poems in the, am I, am I correct? That some of the poems in this collection you were working on as early as in
1: high school? No, no, no. I think I don't know where that came up, but no. The earliest, I think, the earliest poems in this collection date from the time I was in the Darkroom Collective, uh, which would have been the late '80s, early '90s. So I joined the Darkroom. I went to Darkroom Collective started in 1988. What? What is it? I, it was a. Uh, Collective of primarily of young black writers, but also artists, musicians, journalists, interesting people that met at a um, house on 21 Inman Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts. A lot of uh, reports or discussions of us uh, say that we all were at Harvard, but that's not true. Uh, we, you know, some people went to Harvard, some people. <laughs> Barely, you know, were in school, right? Anywhere. We just sort of gathered together and actually, I should, let me just credit the three founders, uh, Sharon Strange, Janet Lowe, Janet Lowe and Thomas Sayers Ellis. They were friends. They lived in the house at uh, 21 Inman Street, and they went to James Baldwin's funeral and decided, you know, gee, we would love to be able to meet writers like Baldwin, right? While they're still alive. We would like to host them and have them share their work with the community. So it was, it was really geared towards the community. It was not part of any formal institution. That e- ethic of the collective was still in the air, you know, because this was in the late 80s. But, of course, you know, many of the people that we had interacted with were products of the 60s and 70s, right? That was just, that was our our childhood. And uh, so the they started a reading series in 1988, and I went to, I think, every one of the readings in 88. And then I think I showed someone some of my artwork, because I draw also, and some of my writing. And they said, Oh, you know, we'd like you to join the dark room. So in 1989, I joined the dark room. And I was primarily writing fiction, but there were a lot of amazing poets who were part of uh, the dark room. And so I also started writing, you know, I was writing, I had written poetry in high school and as a child. So I was also writing poetry as well. So some of the poems date from then, and then some date from. A few years later, when I went to what was called a, a workshop called the Kaveh Kahnem Writers' Workshop in the late 90s. And this was after I published my first uh, book, Annotations. And the Kaveh Kahnem, uh, Writers' Workshops are dedicated to poetry. And it was a, a more organized, beautifully organized, I should say, workshop that originally took place during the summer It was founded by Cornelius Eady and Toy Derricotte, two amazing poets, and brought together Black poets of all ages, right, and Black black broadly understood, so people from all over the the Black diaspora, for a a summer workshop. And then it started to expand to workshops, you know, during the fall and spring. And uh, just, you know, they have a book, they have a book prize, and now they have a series of prizes. But it's just a really amazing gathering of people, and so I wrote some more of the poems uh while at com Co- Khanum. and then had been writing poems pretty much you know all along, so that's why you have a sense i think there's a sense that yeah, some of these poems really go back a while, and some of them are fairly new but yeah i've been i i write poem, poetry all the time sure is
0: there a, is poetry what you would consider your like primary mode like I know you also write fiction? do you even think of it that way? Is there one that you feel is your main thing? And the other thing is sort of like your side hustle or is
1: it all of a piece? It's all of a piece. It's all of a piece. I mean, I, I I've said, uh, I think before, so f- uh, forgive me for anyone who's heard me say this, but I used to often when I would have an idea or feeling or words would come to me, I would write them as a poem. And then, you know, this is especially when I was younger. And then I realized, no, this John, you're writing a story. This is not a poem. Um, and now I think I have a much clearer sense that you know this is going to be a poem, or I want to you know do this. Uh, this is going to be a story because I, I really have a narrative I want to work through and and explore. But I, yeah, I, I feel that they're of a piece, you know. And this is this is something I think you know that I, I appreciate about the approach to writing in the past is that you know, many writers you know tried it all. Right? They wrote they wrote stories. They wrote. Novels, they wrote poems, they wrote plays, they wrote journalism, you know, they wrote essays. Uh, they, you know, some of them were even scotch you know, scholars and wrote scholarly writing. So you have really the entire range of things, memoirs, right, all kinds of nonfiction. And then, of course, there were always people who were much more specialists, right, in one area or another, you know. And I, I, I try to always say to my students and say to myself, right, you write what you're compelled to write, you write what you're drawn to write, you write what sometimes you need to write. That's the important thing. And it's not, it might not always work or be what you were hoping for, but there was a reason why you wrote what you wrote and, you know, honor that, you know, hold fast to that Uh, and just keep going. I want to talk to you about a theme
0: in this book uh, that really stood out to me. And that is the, this theme of survival. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Several of the poems deal with the AIDS uh, crisis of the late 80s and the early 90s. You can definitely feel echoes of it in multiple poems. There's also the issue of violence against black people, violence against queer people, and all that that entails. And then there's also, on a related note, and I don't know if this filtered in because I don't know how... How recently you were working on any of these poems, but I couldn't help but think about what we've been living through with COVID, and the way that COVID is an uh, in the pandemic is an echo of the AIDS crisis, both in terms of its disruption to everyday life and also in the ways that it has impacted disproportionately people of color. So, uh, you know, uh, that's kind of a big question, but I just like would like to hear you talk about. This theme of survival and the ways in which you're reckoning with
1: it—that's a great, great question. So I think that right survival is a recurrent theme, and of course it makes sense as a black person living in this in this society. <laughs> it's, it's something I live with every day. I think it's important that you mention the AIDS pandemic its relation to, you know, COVID nineteen. I mean, one of the things that I think uh, is was very significant to me in 2020, when we first, you know, encountered COVID was the government's response. And it reminded me so much of what I recalled in the 1980s, right? You know, this sort of dismissal of what was happening, the lies, the bumbling, et cetera. Okay. And it was very clear that people were dying, right? and And disproportionate numbers, Black, you know, and other BIPOC people, right? Working class and poor people, the frontline workers, right? The people who were whose lives you know, basically were on the line. People who couldn't work from home were dying, and there was this sort of strange—I'm not even talking about the anti-vax people, you know, or the the people the COVID denialists, but you know, from the government, this sort of strange kind of non-response or dis, you know dismissal, playing it down, and it really felt like you know what I remembered. From the early 80s, right? I, and I was in high school then. But I mean, it was very clear to me that, you know, I mean, yes, researchers were taking this seriously. And the people who were dying from, you know, uh, AIDS were taking this seriously. But the, the government, it was the government silence and inaction. And, you know, so if I had a feeling of PTSD, and, you know, that's something I think that, like, the question is, you know, how do you convey that, right? How do you convey that 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 feeling of, threat, that feeling of menace, that feeling of, you know, a feeling of almost like bare life. Right. But also one of the things that I wanted to do in this book, and I I, I kind of, I want to stress this is to suggest that alongside the portrayal of, you know, the struggle to survive, I also wanted to show moments of joy. I also wanted to show moments of happiness. I also wanted to show that, you know, a kind of sense of people thriving, right, in the midst of the worst, the very worst things, the the greatest tragedies, right, that 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 people didn't give up. We don't give up. I mean, of course, some people are crushed by, you know, the forces out there, right. But I wanted to show that there that this is this was more than just you know accounts of 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 the most horrible things right that we, that we go through that I've gone through, that we all go through, that black people go through, and to say that yes, no, we we, we still have this incredible capacity for love, to appreciate the world, to experience joy, particularly with each other, right? same, same with you know LGBTQ people that it's not all doom and gloom. You know, so I, so I, maybe that's a kind of roundabout answer to what you asked, but, but I, I, I I've thought about this a lot, you know, because again, uh, someone had asked me, I think, um, about, uh, the question of elegy, right? And I, I realized, of course, there are a number of elegies in here, but I didn't want this to be a book that was simply not simply, but was a, just, but a collection of elegies, right? There's an elegiac tone, elegiac tone, uh, in, aspects of this book or places in this book, but it's not only a collection of elegies, right? It's a, it's a collection of a range of sort of possibilities of, of how one might portray a life and lives, right? How one might portray experiences, right? And, you know, I wanted to draw on a range of poetic forms, right? Poetic genres and forms uh, to do that.
0: Well, and if you're exploring the subject or the theme of survival, you know, elegy might be part of it, but Mm -hmm. celebration is part of our coping strategy as well. I mean, if all we're ever doing is mourning, it's going to be pretty difficult to survive. (laughs) And sometimes I think there's something heroic, uh, like particularly heroic about finding reasons to be happy or finding reasons to celebrate and cut against whatever forces out there might be bearing down in Mm -hmm. dark ways. So I don't know. I think like again, it gets back to this feeling of completeness and this feeling of having been given, from your perspective, a pretty total picture. Oh, look at your cat <laughs> sniffing the microphone. <laughs> yes, this
1: cat is make, has to make an appearance, uh, and now yes, she is sniffing the microphone. And as you see,
0: what kind of? What's her
1: camera. name? Her name is Cammy. Oh, hi, Cammy. Yeah.
0: But yeah, I don't know. I just I I find I find that. Again, more true to life, to have these more celebratory moments captured and countenanced against the more elegiac or somber images or poems or moments, and when they reflect off one another, that it's it, there's it delivers a sense of heightened power. That's all I can really say about it. You know, they really like the the, the lower moments feel more poignant, and the higher moments feel higher when you have them working off of one another.
1: Well, thank, thank you. And one one other thing, you actually, I think, touched upon something that I find fascinating. You sort of picked up a, a kind of, uh, what we could say, a, uh, an undercurrent here, a subtext with these forms. One of the earlier versions of this collection was titled Heroic Figures. And I thought about, it I said, you know, with this, should I, should I keep Heroic Figures? And I thought, no, I'll just go with a simpler one-word title. I actually love one-word titles, so let me just put that out there, but uh though it's nuanced, like the punk so it's actually several words, but I also thought, you know, punk what 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 if I think about punks as heroic figures right? what does that mean right punks in all those possible meanings right so in a sense that idea of uh of a certain kind of heroism runs through right and I also one of the things I've also often thought about is you know I know in you know the United States there's this there's a vogue for, there's a you know endless fascination with and desire for superhero stories, and I think you know the, the superheroes are all around us, right? Uh, doing the most interesting, extraordinary things, and one of those things is surviving. You know, to survive in this society and be able to live and function and do and you know, I mean that's that almost takes a for so many of us a super heroic effort.
0: Well, yeah, and that heroism can be. Uh, can be found in somebody willing to go out dancing, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. in the in the midst of the AIDS uh, crisis, for example, or people trying to find love, uh, right. you know, and trying to connect with one another, despite the fact that we're all going to die, or that you know death is near, or society does not approve or this, you know, the, or the very fact of our connection could be dangerous to us, you know, I'm thinking in particular of queer culture. Sure. Uh, and then also I think of the persona section and I think of these great artists or athletes or scientists that you're channeling who, despite the societal pressures bearing down on them, made great art and found deep meaning in their lives. I think too of one of the most moving poems in the collection for me which is the poem I believe entitled Pulse which is dedicated mm-hmm. to the lives lost at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando several years ago in that horrific shooting there again people going out dancing and demonstrating a kind of heroism particularly when you consider what, like what they were up against and how they lost their lives in a hail of bullets shot from a gun by somebody who didn't believe that they even had a right to exist or who was so disturbed by them that you know he chose to put an end to all of their lives so i don't know it's just it, i guess the point is that this kind of heroism that we're talking about manifests in every section of the book and in a number of ways
1: exactly exactly i mean and i will say that Paul's poem is a what are the newer poems probably the one of the newest poems uh, in the collection and i wanted to To think about that, and I thought about you know how do how do you memorialize people who are killed just for being who they are? I mean, and that's of course that's come back to that comes back to kind of you know one of the themes that runs through through you know throughout uh, this entire collection. But they they were they went out dancing, they went out to hang out, they went out to enjoy themselves. They were predominantly Latinx, I believe, and 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 black, and they never thought that they would never come home. Their loved ones never thought that they would never come home. But this is, you know, it also sort of points to kind of the larger, as I was saying, societal violence, you know, we live in. This is a country that's deeply shaped by, I know this is considered controversial by some people, but it shouldn't be, deeply shaped by, you know, racism and white supremacy and settler and extractive colonialism, right? You know, we live in an empire, right, that, you know, enacts violence all over the world. And within its borders, right, and these violences take many many forms right they manifest themselves in many ways right and um you know the the violence against uh you know people of color bipoc people, anti-black racism, the violence against LGBTq people right it's all of a you know it's all of a piece right so I thought with this poem right you know the maybe the best way would be to think of a collective we these voices of the living and the dead and to portray them through just who they are, what they wear, what they do, what they hear, how they feel right, what they listen to, and what echoes of all of this are with us after they're gone.
0: Could I ask you to read that poem? It seems like such a nice time to have you do that so that listeners can get a a more complete picture of what we're talking about.
1: Sure. Pulse for the 49 murdered and 53 wounded at the Pulse nightclub, Orlando, Florida, June 12th, 2016. We are the quiet street hours before doors open. We are the first words and the parting ones. We are the cologne and perfume selected for tonight alone. We are the fragrance of soap, Vaseline, shea butter. We are the press polos and teas, the freshly laced kicks. We are the pants just out of the dryer, the sweater that fits. We are the glances, the stares, the winks. We are the close cut, the Caesar and tight fade. We are the crucifix, beads, and cowrie shells. We are the knockoff watch and the 14-carat chain. We are the cordon and the gathering line. We are the sachet and the strut and the swagger. We are the foundation, mascara, and blush. We are the eye blink, the heartbeat, the hush. We are the oil glistening in locks, ponytails, and froze. We are the piercings from eyebrows to tongues to noses. We are the mouth spray, the breath mints, the gum. We are the bustier, the suspenders, the garters. We are the shades that never come off. We are the pocket scrap or the rolling paper packet. We are the X, the weed, the snowy trail. We are the bitter beer, fizzy soda, and sweet cocktail. We are the chairs rearranged to open the door. We are the sweaty brows, the half hidden tears. We are the gleam of smartphone screens. We are the small talk, the banter, the laughter. We are the claps and the clap backs. We are the wigs gone too tight or just right. We are the improvised steps, the smoothest moves. We are the dances that precede the groove. We are the crews stare and icy glare. We are the key keys and air kisses and shade. We are the gossip that cannot wait to be told. We are the static bass and reverb. We are the heat rising off of bodies nearing, touching. We are the beat that slides beneath the beat. We're the fallen lash, the broken heel, the belt cinched tight. We are the proposal for a lifetime. Few minutes of the night. We are the breath held to the end of the evening. We are the closing doors, the bolted locks. We are the silence that always remembers. We are the song that never ends.
0: You should be a poet. <laughs> Thank you. I think you might have a future. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that's lovely and so sad. Uh, yeah. Because it's all these things that attach themselves to a person, like the details of lives—you know, the physical details or the the like, circumstantial details, whatever it is. But there's a sense of absence amid all of mm-hmm. it. That's really poignant and really sad. Yeah. Did you write that in the immediate aftermath, or did it take some time?
1: It took some time. I had to think about it. I I, I think I wrote down notes about. The, the horrific tragedy, but in some ways it felt so close to it. I mean, I wasn't there. I didn't know anyone who uh, was killed, who was lost, was injured. But I felt deeply for them, as I as I always do when these when horrific tragedies like this happen. But I felt it, this is too close to it, and I felt like you know there's a way in which I mean some people can you know process things very quickly and write about it, and I, I honor those people. I think it's, a, it's an amazing gift to be able to do that. Uh, but I it took me a little while. I had to sit with it and then figure out, well, how do you write about this to honor, uh, to honor all of these people who were lost, uh, these lives that were lost, right, in their particularity, in their richness, right? But also I have a poem that speaks to, Anyone, right? You think about the pulse, just that very, the idea of pulse, pulse, both the, the the nightclub, but also the pulse of the beat, right? You know, the pulse of of the music, the pulse of life itself, you know, in in spaces like pulse. So I had to sit with it for a little bit, and then it came to me. And I said, you know, when something comes to you, if you're a writer, you know, you want to write it down, right? Because it you, it may, you know, appear and disappear. So.
0: Poems, at least as I imagine them, when they do arrive, they tend to tend to happen fast, right? I mean, it, I know there's a revision process that you know inevitably unfolds, but maybe not always. It just seems to me this way, compared to say writing fiction or writing long form nonfiction or long form anything that you know a poem can kind of show up and channel itself through you uh, quickly. <laughs>
1: Yes. Sometimes it does happen that way. Uh, Some years ago I worked at NYU and uh, what I would do, I had a a, a boss who allowed me to post poems. I had a a, a clear glass office, right? And so I would post a weekly poem by a a different poet, you know, that I, I admired, you know, so I'd have poems by uh, Lucille Clifton or uh, John Ashbery or I mentioned Cornelius, you know, Cornelius, Cornelius Edie, uh, Toy Derricotte, just a, you know, or just a range of poets. I think one time Mace, you know, the poet Mae Swenson, uh, Marianne Moore. Right? So, you know, range of people, and um, Jane Cortez. And but what I would also do was during my lunch break, because I was right uh, not too far from Washington Square Park, and I would sometimes walk to the park and sit and write or find a place, you know, I'd grab my food and then find a place, you know, uh, it was fairly quiet and just write a poem and just to have that that, that experience of the practice of writing daily and writing during short periods of time. And sometimes, you know, you know, it's just like you, the, the, it's, you have a feeling, you have, as I said, a line or word or, you know, a phrase will come to you and you just write it down. And th- that doesn't mean it's going to be a great poem or, you know, uh, it's even going to, it'll work at all. But I would try to do that. And then, of course, sometimes would have what became, I mean, I think a few of these poems emerged from that experience. And then other times it was like, no, this just doesn't work at all. But then sometimes you realize, okay, I need to just, after I've written it down, I need to set it to, set it aside and come back to it. And the process of revision can do wonders. So I've said, you know, there are a series of poems in here called, that I call postcard poems. And um, I got the idea of postcard poems... Many years ago, from uh, a reading about the, I think the the late uh, German poet uh, Peter Altenberg, who wrote postcard poems. I think this is directly where I took the idea. And I had one poem. I think it was called. It was just called postcard, right? And it was a series of sections. And for whatever reason, I couldn't get it to work. I couldn't get it to work. I couldn't get it to work. And then when I was working on this book, I said revision. These are a series of separate poems. Break it up into these individual postcards because they're postcards, John. They should be short. Come on. I mean, it's like the idea is there. The text is there. The, you know, Follow your own you know your mind follow, follow the follow the path you know that you set out for yourself I mean it's here all the clues are here so in that that was one instance, an instance where revision actually was really important because then I realized, okay, no I have a series of poems here as opposed to one big poem that doesn't work, and they are little postcards, and in revising them I actually I had a ball. Revised. I had a lot of fun revising them, and I think they each work as little individual postcards.
0: Well, yeah. And once again, the uh the issue of time comes to mind in the way that uh you know things can take longer than we we wish that they would as writers sometimes. But that's often a blessing in disguise. And everything's on its own clock, isn't it? You know, it's like things come together the way that they're supposed to when it's when it's ready, or at least that's the way you hope it you, you hope it happens. But it's funny to have an answer like that, a creative solution, kind of staring you in the face. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it takes a while for it to become apparent, you know. Right. Well, capitalism wants us to work quickly and be super productive and churn out things, and not everyone works that way. Right. Some people are able to be very productive and do work at a very high level and work quickly. And I, again, I honor that. I think that's an amazing gift and um, a treasure. Uh, those writers and those works, those artists and those works. But, you know, some of us move in a, at a different pace. And sometimes, right, you know, even if you try to, you, you push yourself to try to follow the kind of paces, the pace that's set out for you, the paces that are set out for you. And um, it doesn't work, right? You have You have to have some space to think, to reflect, to revise, to actually get to where you really want to and need to go.
0: I want to ask you a little bit more about your process. You know, you talked about hanging out in Washington Square Park with your notebook and writing a poem, and I think this this sounds a little bit like an apprenticeship mode. Like you know, you're learning how to do it, and you're also learning the kind of muscle memory of just sitting down to write on a regular basis and trying to write poems. But mm-hmm. when you reflect on your body of work and the way that you get the work done. Uh, are there some consistent elements you can point to like everything from like, like practical stuff, like schedule to more aesthetic concerns? Like do poems typically occur to you or begin with a word, a line, a feeling, Like just so that listeners at home who might be uh, poets or aspiring
1: poets themselves can get a sense of how you actually do it. Well, I don't have a set schedule for writing, particularly writing poetry. I mean, with fiction, I feel like I have to, you know, dedicate time to it because it takes a while uh, and I'm a slow writer. So I really do have to, I mean, it just, it, I wish I could write fiction more quickly. So often with poems, you know, I feel like, you know, and over the years, I just feel like I've always been writing them kind of in the interstices of everything else. But one of the things I do try to do consistently still is, you know, keep a notebook, write in my notebook, just jot down all kinds of things. Phrases like, like I said, sometimes you know, poetry emerges. Poetry is a a uh, technology of feeling, and it emerges from feeling. And uh, so, one of the things that I try to do, right, is if there's a particular feeling or mood, you know, that kind of comes over me, I try to write that down. Right, lines, you know, language itself. Poetry is built up of language, so I try to you know record interesting words, lines from other poets. Are always inspirations, and other poets' work is an inspiration. So I, whenever I'm reading other people's poetry, I take notes in the margins of their work, and then sometimes we'll take notes. Often we'll take notes in my own little notebook, you know. And sometimes you know you just say, Wow, this person is a really great poet. You know, I'm so glad I read this person. You know, and then of course when you you know set their book aside, you realize, Oh my God! Not only did I love this book, not only you know did I appreciate their prowess. As a poet, but actually, it's got me thinking, and it's got my mind working about you know what I might do. I also do things like I like little poetic exercises. I do this with fiction as well, you know. So try to write a poem that is nothing but uh, metaphors, or try to write a poem that's nothing, uh, you know, that basically that uses anaphora, where you have you know repetition. So just to give you one example of that, I have a poem in here. That I actually asked the editor, can I include it? You know, would it would it would it work? And uh, they said, yeah, we we think it'll work. And I was like, huh, okay, you know. But I I had sent it out to try to get it published. It's called Gift, and it includes the anaphoric statement. I enclose right, so it's a gift. It really is a gift to the reader, and um, just playing like that. Like, what do you come up with? If when you when you use a very simple tool like repetition or you know the various tools of rhetoric, right? I think when I was at Cave Canem, I wrote a poem. I realized that, you know that when you repeat the words at the end of a line, it's called epistrophe. Which to me, I was associate with that famous composition by Thelonious Monk. So it's like, oh wow, epistrophe! You know the thing, <laughs> right? Right. This this wonderful you know. So this is you, between epistrophe, monks epistrophe, and epistrophe. This rep, particular type of repetition, and I wasn't the poem didn't work, but I just love like that kinds of that kind of play, that those kinds of play. So I think you know one of the things I also try to do, and I would urge all poets to do this is just play. You know, allow your mind to to be open and free, and no matter what you're tackling, because sometimes you know you, that might be the route to figure out how to write something even something very very serious like that pulse poem through 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 allowing your, your yourself to, to to open up and and uh take any approach even approaches that you otherwise wouldn't take
0: so quickly i just want to clarify uh you mentioned Cave khanem and i know we talked mm-hmm. about the darkroom collective earlier are, are those two things
1: those those are two separate things or
0: are they yes. related
1: yes they're two separate things uh there some of the people involved with the darkroom later had uh, connections to Kavikhanum, but Kavikhanum was its own wonderful autonomous and is its own uh, wonderful autonomous organization, uh, and it was founded, I want to say, in 1996 by uh, Toy Toyderikad and Cornelius Eady. Okay. And it still exists, yes. Did you say that yeah. earlier? Am I am I crazy or did you? I I did mention that, but yes, no, but it's it's I, I'm glad to mention it again. Okay, yeah, I point. just want to
0: make sure people listening are, are oriented, and then. When you say you were saying about uh, keeping an open mind, and I think to myself, this phrase "notice what you notice," you know, which I mm-hmm. think is so much to do with how we write, you know, whether it's poetry or fiction or nonfiction. But I noticed there is a poem in the collection called "Grinder," I believe, mm-hmm. which felt to me very much cold from the experience of using the Grinder app. I could be totally yeah. wrong here, but it, it felt like a very genius melding of poetry and technology so you talk about like observing you know being out in the world and observing and noticing what you notice but also noticing what we notice when we're interacting with technology which is what we do so much of the time i'm curious to know if that's an outlier for you like this poem grinder or if it's something you find yourself doing more and more is you know looking to technology for inspiration or finding poems inside of these sort of everyday technological interactions that we have?
1: Well, that's a great question. So I will say this. I actually, a few years ago, I actually wrote a paper. I was very interested in, you know, black writers who were exploring technology. I mean, there've been there've been some very, very interesting studies um, about, you know, uh, the, the relationship between various kinds of uh, electronic technologies and uh, poetry. And in most of these books, they don't deal with any writing by uh, Black writers or writers of color, and so I, I wrote a paper about this. And many years ago, I mean, when I first started, uh, I had a blog, I still have a blog. But you know, I, I was playing with things like you know the the gifs, uh, gifs or gifs. I was making poems out of gifs. There's a credible artistic team, Mindy and Keith Obadike and they they you know created these incredible poems, fascinating like online poems and I think there's there's one poem that actually I wrote about where you know depending on where the cursor is, certain things show up and certain certain things don't, so it's almost like an erasure poem. The poem has this really kind of uh, powerful content, but depending on how you you know where you put the cursor, you see certain things and don't see certain things so i've I've been interested in this for a while and and you know at a certain point, I realized. You know looking at a like an app like Grinder, it's like, yeah, this language is just so on a certain level so absurd and so fascinating, so I will say with that poem you know i i as i said i- co- I collect these things, I call these things, I write everything down, and I compiled the language and then I was at image text Ithaca which is a wonderful program founded by Catherine Taylor and Nicholas Milner at uh, Ithaca College that really melds art and text, right? And brings in, you know, writers and photographers and visual artists, et cetera. And they do all kinds of filmmakers, it's just all kinds of fascinating things. And uh, I was talking with Nicholas Milner and I said, hey, you know, I've got this language and it's actually, it makes a poem. And he had photographs that actually were somewhat similar, right? Where people were sort of showing everything, but their faces were pixelated out. So we actually did a little book called Grind, and then when uh, it came time to to put this book together i thought well you know i'll just go without the images right because there's no nothing else in the book has images but the text itself sort of works on its own so i slightly re- that again revised that a little bit but yeah it's like i i love I, that poem to me is sort of one of the one of my favorites because on one level it's so absurd and another level it's so profound i mean you know it's it's there's so much Intimate material there and then there's you know, so much material that actually sort of pushes people away. And I feel like that's how technology works in a sense. You know, we feel sometimes so close, but then of course, yeah, it's it's also so mediated. Right. So I feel like that poem captures that experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm not somebody who's used Grinder, but it felt familiar to me. I was like, <laughs> Oh yeah, I recognize this. I mean there's something right, about grinder,
1: tender, all of it. Yeah. Whatever it is,
0: you know, the self presentation of the internet and the way that we build self on the internet and i think interestingly from a writerly perspective the way that these different technology platforms engender their own culture and their own dialects almost the users of these platforms generate this stuff and it becomes like the lingua franca among different Mm -hmm. users of these sites you know and i find myself adopting them you know you kind of just do it intuitively but it's very interesting from a poetic or writerly perspective to take that stuff and then to try to reconstitute it into a poem and that one was great because it's like really sad, but also really funny. <laughs> there's a, there's a great sadness and loneliness in dating apps and, uh, hookup apps or whatever, but also just the internet period.
1: And I, I love that you mentioned that it's funny. I mean, that's one of the things I was hoping for, right? Is that right? I mean, I want you to, it's, it's sad. It's, you know, it's kind of cringy. But on the other hand, I also, it's, it's like we're saying absurd. It's like, it, it's often quite funny. Like the things that people say, it's like, what are you, what are you doing? But then I, on the, uh, the other hand, you realize, no, I mean, they're human, right? I understand what you're doing. This is not going to help you. <laughs> <laughs> somebody, but you know, okay, you know, I can't, I can't look away. So, you
0: know. Before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about your bio. And I always like to know a little bit about the writers that I'm talking with, in terms of just where they're from, uh, how you formed, how you got to poetry in your life. I, it sounds like, I think you said earlier, it started in your adolescence, but I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, you are from the Midwest. You're a St. Louis native. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. Born and reared in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay, so I'm a Midwestern guy too. I was born in Milwaukee, but divided my childhood between Milwaukee and Indianapolis. I can remember class trips to St. Louis when I was a kid, and St. Louis wow. was sort of exotic. Like like the the, the the arch in St. Louis was like the Arc de Triomphe as far as <laughs> I was concerned, <laughs> you know? Like, But uh, tell me a little bit about your upbringing and your family life.
1: Well, I was uh, born uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, and my parents were born there. St. Louis is an interesting place because it is very Midwestern, but it's also very Southern, right? So you get that. It's a really fascinating combination. Kansas City is somewhat similar, but Kansas City, I feel like, is is a little bit more Western, right? And, you know, other cities are, are like Chicago. I mean, Chicago is like a... And St. Louis have commonalities. Milwaukee and St. Louis have commonalities. But yes, you, you really get that feeling of uh, both the Midwest and the South in St. Louis.
0: And I should say, too, uh, that speaks to me very directly because I always try to emphasize this when I'm telling people about the part of my youth that unfolded in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. That, too, has a very Southern vibe. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I say this with some authority because my parents are from Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And so I was, keen you know, I had my... Uh, familiarity with it there it's it's like yeah you know these places like latitudinally are pretty far north but there's southern culture in a place like st louis there's southern culture in a place like indianapolis in ways that there is not for chicago and milwaukee i feel like those are fully upper midwest you know but it's definitely got southern flavor
1: Right and well, and I would say, like you know, if you look at the black communities in almost all of those cities, and, and this includes Cleveland, uh, you know, Cincinnati, right? You know, it, the the Great Migration transformed these cities, right? Detroit it transformed these cities. So you know, everyone I knew had relatives every Black person, at least I know, who, you know, had relatives in the South, right? You, you grew up in St. Louis, but you had relatives, you know, uh, in Arkansas and Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, Tennessee. And then, of course, you know, even in Chicago, the South Side of Chicago, you know, a huge portion of the people in the South Side of Chicago come directly from Mississippi. Their their ancestors came from Mississippi. So, so that actually sort of shaped the culture profoundly. I would say, you know, I grew up in was born and grew up in the city of St. Louis, and then at a certain point, my parents moved to the suburbs. So I also had a suburban, you know, childhood and adolescence. I had both. I was raised Roman Catholic, Uh, as was I. (laughs) I I Yeah, St. Louis is very Catholic. They're both very Catholic cities. But I had, you know, relatives who were not Catholic, like my grandparents. So of course, I also, you know, I tell people at one point, you know, uh, it felt like there was this dual you know in my experience where on the one hand you know the catholic uh, priests and nuns were telling us you know that anyone who's not catholic is you know basically like an infidel and then of course i went to the local community baptist church and i was like maybe i should get baptized <laughs> so anyway you know it's like the, the this this is a very, very interesting experience with religion growing up i drew uh before i ever wrote anything i was drawing at 18 months old and i still draw from time to time. I was one point I figured out, you know, how to draw with my finger on my phone. So I had like a whole drawings I would, you know, do when I was commuting. And I I was writing when I was very young, writing poems, uh, you know, my own little stories and things like this. And uh, wrote all through junior high, high school, college, and then after college. So that's that's sort of my experience. And I, I would say that, you know, I've said this before, so uh, forgive me again, if people have heard me say this, but I think the idea of being a writer was not, that, that was not anything that crossed my mind even when I was in high school. And there were of course famous writers who had come from St. Louis, but the idea that, you know, I could be black and be a writer, even though, uh, you know, I was, as a child, introduced to like this amazing corpus of Black culture. This was during the 1970s, you know, in that period of very sort of pro-Black period, uh, the period coming out of the Black arts movement. You know, I had an introduction to just, just everything from my parents and aunts and uncles. But the thought that I could become a writer was not at all a possibility. And then when I was a senior in, in college, I took a class with Ishmael Reed And it was kind of like a surreal experience, because he was such a great teacher, uh, you know, and an amazing person. But also, I mean, here was a black writer right in front of me, you know, who was actively writing and encouraging us and everything. So I think that that also sort of transformed my perspective on what was possible.
0: When I was at Harvard? Yes. Okay, so you, you got from St. Louis to Harvard. How like, that was a Like something you were like set a goal to do. I feel like people who go to Harvard are thinking about it from from a young age. Or how did it happen for you?
1: That's a good question. Well, so I went to a uh, all boys Catholic high school in uh, St. Louis when I was uh, maybe about thirteen. We were my father and I were in. It wasn't Marshalls. Maybe it was Marshalls. I don't know. It was one of those stores. Maybe Target. And they had the T-shirts, you know, T-shirts with the different, you know, college logos on them. And uh, he said, oh, you can pick out a few, right? So, of course, one of the ones I picked out, I think was University of Michigan. And then I also picked Washington University, of course, which is based in St. Louis. And I think I picked out Harvard, right? And I don't know why I picked out Harvard, but I was like, okay, maybe, you know. So then when I was a senior in high school, Junior in high school and senior in high school. I thought, you know, where do I want to go to college? And I think what my guidance counselor was saying it was I was a good student, and my guidance counselor was suggesting certain schools. And I think Washington University was sort of in my my head. Howard was another school I thought about. Northwestern, University of Chicago, so low schools in the area, great schools in the area. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to apply to Harvard. So I applied to Harvard early, and got in. And then my father, when I they had a sort of a gathering for the pre freshmen uh, who had gotten in, I think, early, the freshman who got in early. And my father and I flew up there to see the campus and we walked around. And I was like, <laughs> this is far away from home. I'm going in here. So, yeah. So I and I got, you know, some scholarships to go. Although, I mean, it, it's a very different situation now than then, because it's a lot more expensive now, but, you know, given my parents' salary, they they didn't make a lot of money, you know, I would have had to pay nothing. Whereas back then, you know, I still had to take out loans and things like that, because Harvard didn't cover, you know, even if you didn't make a lot of money, they didn't cover everything. So, but yeah, that's where I, I went. Wow. And it was w- wonderful aspects of it and not so fun aspects of it, but yeah, I'm glad I went.
0: And Ishmael Reed changed your
1: life when you were a senior. Yes, yes, he was. He was a remarkable teacher. I mean, I had many, many great uh, professors, but he was, uh, I would say, probably one of the most amazing because he was so encouraging, you know, about everything.
0: And what about your queer identity? Uh, growing up in the Midwest, you say. I mean, I hear Catholic boys' school and just being in the Midwest and in that era. Was this something that you were open about, or was it something that
1: came later? Oh yeah, no, it was, I think it was when I got to college. I think, you know, it, you, I don't think I would be surprising anyone to say that, you know, being like openly gay, queer, bi, trans, in the 1980s <laughs> you know in the middle, anywhere right, right. what you know even you know it anywhere at any age was was an easy thing i mean because of course this was the Reagan era you know and this was the era like when you know when when i was maybe a, a sophomore in high school was when the first reports of aids uh, came out so of course there was a huge homophobic backlash i think it was, i was very aware of it at the same time, you know, you, as a young person, I think, you know, I said, I'm gonna sort of explore. And so, you know, it, we didn't have the internet back then. I mean, it makes me sound like I'm like 100 years old, but you know, you go, there were places singles where you could go read magazines, you know, gay magazines, not like sex magazines, but just, you know, like, uh, like the New York, what was it, the New York native? I think that was one of the magazines. Christopher Street was another one, right? Places that sold those. And then just sort of kind of slowly realizing there was like you know a gay queer you know demimond in St. Louis and in Boston you know that, that sort of beneath the surface of what you saw there was this, there was this whole other world of these other worlds. so but yeah I think I, I had to, that was one of the reasons I think it was good to get away from home which is the you know I would, thing I always say just for young people. Overall, it's just, you know, finding places where you can be yourself is really, really crucial, right? Where you can sort of thrive. And even, I think, even in college, you know, I think there was, you know, Harvard at the time, the, the LGBTQ, I don't know if the Q part was there yet, but the LGBT student organizations were active, but not like they probably would be today. Uh, but I think it was, it, was a, it was a very interesting time uh, to be a young person and pretty young, you know, young gay person, young queer person.
0: Well, this conversation I think is going to end close to where your poetry collection begins, which is in those early days and in Boston and in the 80s and 90s. I have so enjoyed talking with you and I want to congratulate you again on this collection, which feels like a life's work to date in many ways and contains so much. So kudos to you. Thanks for your generosity and conversation and for spending time talking with me. I really
1: appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brad. It's been such a pleasure.
0: All right. That is John Keene. And his new book is called Punks, New and Selected Poems, available now from the Song Cave. You can follow John on Instagram. I believe his handle over there is at JSTheater. For more information on his book, just go to the Song Cave's website. It's the-song-cave.com. One more time, the book is called Punks. New and selected poems. It is excellent. Go get your copy right now. This podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? Every single episode, the entire archive, is available to you, the listener, for free. It's a listener-supported show. So if you like this show, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, I hope you will consider supporting the show over at Patreon. You can do that for as little as $1 a month. The web address is patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com, slash other P-P-L pod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. $1 a month, $3, $5, $10, and so on up the scale. As you move up that scale, you can get stuff. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription. I will write you a letter. I will sing you happy birthday. Patreon.com, slash other P-P-L pod. Don't forget, too, if you would be so kind to pre-order my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Just go to bradlisty.com. Everything is right there. Use whatever online bookseller you prefer and help the cause. This podcast has its own email newsletter. I do a weekly email newsletter. Did you know that? You should sign up for it. It's free. Just click on email newsletter in the left sidebar over at the show's official website otherppl.com you can also sign up for it at bradlisty.com same deal just click on uh, email newsletter over in the sidebar this podcast also has its own official app are you aware of this? it's free the other people with Brad Listy app go get it wherever you get your apps it's a good app The Other People Podcast also has its own YouTube channel. The entire archive is available on YouTube. If you're a YouTube person, please go over there and search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy. Subscribe to the channel, it's free. Just push the subscribe button. It helps the cause. It also helps the cause if you rate and review the show over at Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen. So if you have a minute rate and review the show it helps other people find it the more ratings the better the show does in the algorithm or something like that so great conversation with John Keane it was nice to hear him read his poems wasn't it? every time that happens I'm like I gotta have more poets on this show we could use a little poetry in the world right now So thanks for listening. I've got some good ones in the pipeline. Stay tuned, and I will talk to you soon.